Good morning. I know this chap. Nice bloke, still working hard. He was president of the United States and um, has continued after he left office and it wasn't, it wasn't much fun, his period as president. Um, working very hard in a thing called Habitat for Humanity, which is a wonderful uh, Christian charitable organisation. He was perhaps the first American president to be openly saying he was born again. In fact, he sort of brought that word into common parlance. He was also the first American president to do an interview in Playboy magazine. It was an interesting combination of um, things. But he um, says that the, the talk that got him, he was brought up in church and may well have been a Christian, but the, church, the, the, the topic that really turned his life around and, and made him serious about Jesus was where he was asked this question by a speaker. If you were arrested for being Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Interesting question, isn't it? If you were arrested and charged with being Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And uh, that certainly trans... And I mean, I could... If they said, if I was arrested for being Christian... Well, if I was arrested for being an Anglican minister, I think I could prove that. But you don't have to be a Christian to be an Anglican minister, sadly. I mean, it, it, is, it is severely advised, but some slip through the ranks. But I've got a dog collar here, and, you know, I hang around churches. And, um, but how would you show that you were actually caught up with Jesus and a believer in Jesus? Well, let's pray, because I think James 2 is written with that concern in mind. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of life, for the gift of rain. Thank you for these few moments together. Thank you that we can come to you through Jesus Christ and ask for help. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and above all that your Holy Spirit would help us to hear, to hear your voice through your servant James. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is, it's an unsettling passage, James chapter 2. So if, if, I, if I do an honest job of speaking from God's word and you go home feeling absolutely wonderful, I may have missed the mark. This is a passage that I think is designed to get us to reflect on our life with God. Uh, it really is saying pretty much some of the material that Andrew is sharing with us a couple of weeks ago from James chapter 1 verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's a terrible thought, isn't it, to have deceived yourself. And when Jesus talks about the last great judgment day, which we will be at whether we like it or not, one of the painful parts of it is the number of people who arrived at judgment day fairly confident and were surprised and distressed by the result. Now, I know having said that, those of you with, ses with sensitive consciences have plunged into the depths. Uh, those of us with hard hearts are doing just fine. But this passage will help us. If you love someone at times, you unsettle them so that they won't be ultimately hurt. Uh, sharks, mushrooms and faith have much in common. There, there are a diverse number of versions of sharks, of mushrooms, and of faith. Um, 
I was with Alison one time, we ran to the, we went on a cruise and you could go swimming near a coral thingo and uh, the lady announced that there was a shark or someone announced that there was a shark down there. And a whole lot of us jumped in to go and have a look because we'd been told the sharks here were pretty harmless. Uh, it depends what sort of shark. If it's a little reef shark, fun to watch. So some people thought we were terribly brave, but we weren't. There are different sorts of sharks. You, you'll know that um, it's likely that the Buddha died when a friend cooked him some mushrooms, but they were the wrong mushrooms. He was an old man. And there are different types of faith, different versions, and some of them are, in a sense, perversions. So let's have a look at that to make sure that our version of faith is OK. Now, it might just be helpful to look at some of the key verses in case you, you, know, you get weary and go to sleep. Uh, the message of this passage is not hard to work out. So just someone might like to suggest, what's, what's this verse saying? Chapter 2, verse 14. What's its message? What, is, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them? You know, someone want to summarise what that verse is saying to us? Faith and action. And faith that doesn't have action... The question he asks, and this may be the key question in these verses, can that faith save him or can such faith? I looked up a whole lot of versions on this during the week. They're all bouncing with one of those translations. There's obviously a sort of faith that James is saying, it won't do you any good. Can that faith save him? What good is it? 2.17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by deeds, is dead. I don't suppose it. We have to ask what that, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then the last verse in the section, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So that's his concern here. Because he loves the readers, he writes saying, can we just check on the sort of faith that you have? Because there are different versions and perversions. John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's all he says. God does a whole lot if we believe in Jesus. If you look at Acts 16, the Apostle Paul gets asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. In Acts chapter 10, the very important sermon from Peter, the disciple of Jesus, he finishes, his last point is, all the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Again and again, the Bible would just say, just believe. But obviously there's different sorts of belief and this passage is designed to help us. Well, let's look firstly at dead faith, demonic faith, and then dynamic faith. And I do want you to just you know, run a little bit of a check. As it says in Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. What's dead faith look like? Well, it doesn't leave us guessing. The first couple of verses of this section, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? What profit is it, he's saying? If someone claims to have faith, so they're saying, I have faith, but there's no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Right? So you've got someone who comes to church because it's a brother or sister. Well, perhaps not naked, but obviously short of clothes and hungry. 
If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about the physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Dead faith is the sort of faith that, that talks a bit, like dead and useless love. It talks, but does nothing. So it talks about its belief, talks about its faith. It's the same as a dead, useless love. In 1 John 3, very similarly, it's remarkable how often these themes are just said again and again from the Old to the New Testament. If anyone has material possessions and see the brother or sister in need has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is the same thing. Because what does, what does faith produce? And to go to one of my favourite, all-time favourite verses, one of those ones that sum, seems to summarise so much, this is the Apostle Paul. The only, this is Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. What does faith do? How does faith talk? How does it activate? It expresses itself in love. You don't see faith, you see love. And where there's faith, there will be love. What matters, the Apostle Paul says, very similar to James, is the faith that works through love. If there's no love, no practical meeting of obvious human need, the Bible says there's no love and therefore there's no faith. It's just talk. And it's almost insulting to say to someone who is in obvious need and you could help to say, I hope your needs are met. Right? Someone's desperately lonely. I hope you find friends. Someone's in need of money or something like that. May God provide. That's what's happening here. Go in peace. It's ugly, really, isn't it? That's dead faith. So you can have a sort of faith. There's some sort of faith there, but it's dead. It's useless. It's like a dead body. I, I, I have shared with this. When I've seen dead bodies, I'm not always sure at first if they're dead or alive, unless I've been told they're dead. And uh, you, you watch closely and see if they have any of the tokens of life, like breathing is a help, or moving. So there's a lifeless faith. It looks a bit like faith, but it's missing a key ingredient. Well, secondly, and somewhat similarly, demonic faith. Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So they're saying, you know, faith and deeds, it's, it's a bit like various gifts that God gives. Some people can do it, some people can't. My gift is faith, your gift is deeds, or vice versa. Separating the two things. This is perhaps a key statement here from James. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. This seems to be the issue here, is showing how do you see that someone's got faith? Show it to me. Will you show it by your deeds? If you trust someone, you'll show it by how you respond to their words. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Do you believe there is one God? Now that's, particularly then, Christianity has had quite an influence uh, around the place, as has Islam. It was almost everyone believed in many, 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 many gods. You believe in one God? Well done. So they've got good, orthodox truth. 
In fact, this is part of what uh, some of you will know is part of what uh, is called the Shema, which is the, the summary of Jewish belief that a half-religious Jew would say every morning when they got out of bed. Here is the Lord your God, the Lord is one, uh, the oneness of God. So here's a person who's really cottoned on to some serious theology. It's, it's interesting and somewhat puzzling. He doesn't, partic- he doesn't choose an, an expressly Christian thing. This is a view that Christians share with Jews, that there is only one God. But he chooses a more ancient idea. But he says, okay, you believe in God? Well done. Even the demons believe that. So you see, at this point, the devil is a person of faith. Do you think of the devil as a person of faith? The devil is a, is a being which, who has faith. There are things that the devil believes. And he believes that there is only one God. And at that time, as I mentioned, it was much rarer than you would imagine. The devil was thoroughly orthodox. He could, as it were, stand with us and say most of the creed. I think about the only phrase he couldn't say is where we say in one of the creeds, for us and for our salvation. But much of the creed the devil could say. He believes that there is one God. He believes that Jesus Christ is his son. He believes he will return. He believes in the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's interesting in the Gospels, isn't it, that um, the, the people who know most accurately who Jesus is, because you remember at the beginning of Jesus' life, everyone's just massively confused. They're trying to, make, they're trying to find what category does this person belong to. He, prophet doesn't work. Teacher doesn't quite work. They're trying to work out what, what pigeonhole to put him in. And the, the evil spirits are the ones who go, you know, this is the son of God. Have you come here to torment us? The devils often meet them with a level of fear. The devils, they're the only ones for a long time on the planet who know who Jesus is before the disciples finally catch on. It took them a couple of years. So that you can have very orthodox and thoroughly good theology. You can be a theological lecturer at the finest Bible college in Australia and still be demonic. Because all, what it's saying here is, if you, if you say something's true and that's as far as it goes, bully for you. Right? That's demonic faith. You believe in one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. They have a spiritual experience. Right? It's not just a cold, rational thought. They shudder, which reminds me from the, the um, lions and the jackals saying, Mustafa, is it? Like, you know. So they're aware that this great lion is a scary character. They're not loyal. They're not following him. It is, as we've talked about other times, a bit like Winston Churchill believed in Hitler. He was very clear that he was alive and sadly well and had quite some knowledge of his assets. But you wouldn't say he believed in him in the way that Christians speak about believing into the Lord Jesus. Will Will that faith save you? Will that do you any good? That you've got good, orthodox, truthful ideas about God. And perhaps because you like ideas, you enjoy discussing them and arguing for the better of them. Will that faith save you? Dead faith that doesn't produce love? Demonic faith that is orthodox? And that's about it. You'll know that um, in in the debate that happened after Martin Luther um, did his thing with the doors and the nails and the bits of paper, there were, there were all around Europe, there were debates held between um, reformers and the ones who didn't want to reform. 
And one of the things that becomes clear is when they talk about faith, they often use quite different words. So the ones who are sort of defending the papacy, etc., would use this word credo, which we use, it, it lies behind our statement, the creed. I'd stand and say, that's what I believe. And it, it's a belief that certain things are true. And I think some of them thought that, that, that people like Luther and others were saying, as they heard the Apostle Paul and others saying, faith is the thing that's all important. Not your religious works, not the law of Moses, but trusting in what Christ has done. And they, they, they were using the word credo, and they're saying, that can't be right, can it? But the, the reformers used another word, which is much closer to the word that is in the, in the original and the way it's used, and that is this word fiducia. I probably got the Latin pronunciation wrong. I apologise to those who know how it should be said. And some of you who are engaged in um, accountancy and things like that will know that word. But it means you're entrusted with something. Right? And, and you are, there's something significant in your hands. It's been entrusted to you and you have responsibilities. So that they're saying it's not, it's not just believing. That's important. The credo part's important. The knowledge. And assenting to it's important. But what the Bible's talking about when it talks about faith into, in fact, in the original language, it often has believing into. It's the idea of movement. It's what someone does if they believe in sort of Noah, if they believe Noah's message. You're not doing what the Bible means by faith by simply saying, ah, I believe there's an ark. I believe that that bloke's not a loony. I believe that there's a judgment coming and floods coming. You're not actually believing in the Bible sense until you walk up the ramp and get in the ark. That's when you're fiducing, when you're trusting, you're relying. It's deeply personal and life transforming. And, and for some of us, it's hard to find anyone in life we trust. And many of you will know this. If you've been seriously disappointed and betrayed by crucial people, particularly when you're little, it becomes hard to find anyone you will actually trust. But to find someone who you can really trust is a wonderful relief. Someone who you can actually depend upon. So there's dead faith, which does nothing. There's demonic faith, which is right, accurate, orthodox, but seems to do nothing. And then there's, of course, dynamic faith, or deedy faith, if you like. That's a terrible misuse of a word. So the way he spells this out is by two examples and two radically different people. You can line up behind whichever one you want to. Abraham and Rahab. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions are working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures were fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And then he gives the example of Rahab, the prostitute. In the same way, not even Rahab, the prostitute considered uh, considered righteous for what no, let me start that again in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different in different directions so you've got two examples of real faith Abraham I mean Abraham's the man in the Old Testament right? uh, in many ways more important than Moses he is the man who is called out of nothing to follow God 
right? And follow he does, and he trusts God. You know the story, he was 75 when God called him into action. His wife and he were both unable to have children, or she, was, she wasn't able to have children, so because he was having sex with her, he couldn't have children. Um, and you can read all about this in Genesis. But then God gives him a promise. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And it's a silly promise, really. It's a ridiculous promise. But God Almighty makes it to him. And then he keeps him waiting for about 20 years before he gives him the child. There are very good reasons for that. But it becomes more and more obvious if this happens, it's going to be a God thing and not just a lucky break. And he believes God. And then in chapter 22, when he's 100 plus, and he's got his son Isaac, God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And all those words are indicating that God knows exactly what he's doing. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the mountain that I will show you and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Now we, we um, would love to spend a lot of time in this. It's a great passage. Um, it's important to know, if you read the Bible, and, and not everyone who critiques the Bible or even wrestles with the Bible does, Isaac was never going to die. He was just never, ever going to die. Right? But Abraham didn't know that. And here's the other thing. It was so common then for people to offer children or other expensive and valuable things as sacrifice to the gods that God asked for a human sacrifice in the world in which Abraham lived would not have been a great shock. One of the reasons it's such a shock to us, one of the reasons, is because in a sense, because of the triumph of Christianity and Judaism. The Old Testament, the book of, books of Moses, God hates human sacrifice. He hates it. He despises it. It's evil. And so the Jews were never allowed to do it. He'll deal with the sacrifice question. But Abraham is just being asked what, to do what Molech and all these other gods often asked for. And he, he obeys God. And um, let's see if we can find this next. These are the two verses out of Genesis. If, if you go down to Genesis 22, the second one, at the point when he has the knife up above his son, and there's only one more action to happen, he hears a voice and the angel says, Do not do anything to the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, from me. What happens there is it becomes obvious the faith and the loyalty that Abraham has to God. And this is a bit scandalous to us. But he loves God more than God's gifts. Every child we have is a gift from God. But it was so unspeakably obvious that Isaac was a gift from God. And what Abraham shows, amongst other things, is he continues to love God, the source of every good gift, more than the most precious of the gifts that he gives. But he was never going to die. He stops him. And what becomes obvious now is that he fears God. It's now known. It's now obvious. It goes back to the idea in verse 19 in James 2, show me your faith. How do you show faith? You show it by trusting and obeying. That's how you do it. And Abraham is the great example of that. But 
He then quotes a verse that comes seven chapters before, which is up there for you. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, we're travelling a bit fast here, I'm sorry, but what happens is back in chapter 15, Abraham has been called to follow God and promised a kid. There's been a, a long delay. Nothing's happening. So finally, Abraham says, how about if I have sex with one of my... How about if we adopt someone and make him my heir and then eventually he decides to have sex with one of the servants and maybe get an heir that way? And God says, no, 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 no. It's going to be you and Sarah. And he takes him outside and says, look at the stars. You'll have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Now, I don't think the way to work out is to go, one, two, three, one. This is just a standard poetic way of saying, you're going to have heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of kids. It's a ridiculous promise. But Abraham's response is there. Abraham believed the Lord and God credited him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. Abraham believed that God would keep his promise. Abraham believed that God was able to keep his promise. He had little to no idea why it was so late, but he trusted God. He depended on God. It wasn't a theoretical thing, but you can't see that, can you? You can see his trust when he takes that gift and is about to bring it to an end. And what he's saying, what, what, what James is saying here is that faith in God, well, first he says it will do straightforward acts of love if, if someone needs food and housing, etc. But secondly, it will at times follow God into ways that seem utterly weird and sometimes destructive. When you read in the scriptures God saying something, oh, really? It doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, by the way, of course, if you get a sense that you should offer your child or yourself or something up and off, do, do talk to other Christian friends um, because we do know that the scriptures are very clear that God is not into that sort of thing now and he never was. But it was helpful for Abraham, confusing as it might be for us on the way. He then gives a second example of Rahab when the Israelites had come into the promised land and she sides with the people of God against her own people in an act of treason and asks for protection, and she is protected. Her faith is seen in the way that she, she harbours and hides the two Israelites who, who were there snooping around the place, getting an idea of what the land was like. She hides them, she deflects those who are seeking for them, and sends them on their way safely. It's faith in action. And they're the two examples. Now, you might line up more behind Rahab or more behind Abraham. They're very, very different characters. One is a Canaanite, one is an Israelite. You know, one is, it's, they're, they're very different. But they're both examples of faith. He concludes with this verse. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What God has joined together, let no human put asunder. Faith will always produce action unless it's dead faith or satanic faith. But the ordinary faith in Christ will change us from the inside out. Don't separate them out. So let me try and um, th these things might be helpful. This one popped up before. Um, John Calvin, who is a Frenchman who served in Switzerland, he, I think, quite helpfully summarises it. Faith alone saves. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish. Right? John 6, they come to him. The religious people who say, what are the works that God requires? John 6, 29, Jesus answered, the work. Goes from the plural to the singular. The work that God requires is to believe in the one he sent. 
So again and again, the Bible takes it just down to trust God, just trust Him. But that sort of faith, that, that sort of faith that realizes, oh, that's what God is like. Here is someone who is not just big and powerful and the creator of all and the judge of all. This is the person who is loving and trustworthy. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It brings with it all this life transformation because you always obey the person that you trust. We do it with doctors. We do it with all sorts of people. If you trust them, you'll put all sorts of medicines inside you. Sometimes they disappoint because they're only human. But if we trust someone, and for me, I think the example was when our little eight-year-old was diagnosed with di as diabetic, we began to pull chemicals out of little glass things and stick them into her every so often. She was not a great fan of it. Neither was I. Why do we start injecting our daughter and putting unknown chemicals? Trust. Trust. You do obey those you trust. These are not separate things. Or the way that Luther puts it is much the same. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. This is what he's saying here. Dead faith talks about faith. Satanic faith may be orthodox, but it's not life-transforming. Dynamic faith produces deeds. And the reason he's saying it to us is he wants us to be sure who we are. Right? He said it, as I said back here in chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what he's calling us to here. In 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2, there's all sorts of verses that say the same thing. Uh, Paul will speak of the work produced by faith, the labour produced by love. Faith is seen to be a dynamic thing that changes everything when you find that God is the trustworthy one. Let me read you a slightly, um, this, this is in danger of being too long, but it's so good. I've already shortened it. It's from Martin Luther. And sometimes people do sort of run this Paul versus James thing, which is just silly, really. Uh, Augustine. Uh, that great African church father writes, it's just ridiculous to, to, to make out that these guys are saying something different. They're really talking exactly the same language, but they're just talking different parts of it. Right. Let me read what Luther says. This is early in his life. Faith is not what some people think it is. Faith is not enough, they say. You must do good works. You must be pious to be saved. Instead, faith is actually God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, faith is a living, creative, active and powerful thing, this faith. Faith cannot help doing good works constantly. It doesn't stop to ask if good works ought to be done. But before anybody asks, it's already done them and continues to do them without ceasing. Anyone who does not do good works in this manner is simply an unbeliever. He stumbles around looking for faith and good works, even though he doesn't know what faith really is. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favour and love that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful and bold in relationship with God and all creatures. On he goes. See, this, this is what, this, when you... I mean, oh, that's what God is like. It is such a relief to find someone of such quality and such, such uh, infinite skill and power that you can actually trust. It transforms us. We trust him. 
for salvation and we trust him for guidance in life. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. These might be helpful. If not, I'm sorry for wasting your time. Uh, this here, see if this magic thing works. This is the sort of average misunderstanding of Christianity. One or two other religions have a similar, have a similar form. Most religions are just this part. What you do secures your afterlife. But the common mistake that, that Christian sort of people make is when faith and works equals salvation. Whereas what James and Paul both say is, no, 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 faith leads to salvation and works. So he says, will that faith save you? If you have a faith that doesn't sort of produce love and good works, there's obviously something deeply faulty with it. And you need to go back and reflect, have I actually met Christ yet? The other way that some people uh, draw it is this way. This is not too clear, I'm sorry. On the question of faith and works, faith leads to salvation and works are like the fruit. So this is the root of the tree. And as Jesus says, you know, a good tree produces good fruit. By their fruit you will know them. That's what he's saying here. So Paul, Paul and James are answering slightly different questions. You know, Jesus talks in, John's, in Matthew 7. He says that there are two gates. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And the gate is broad and the way is easier that leads to death. In a sense, the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking about these faith questions and justification in Romans and Galatians, he's really talking about entrance into the gate. How does this start? How do we get right with God? Jesus. And when you talk then about the way, right, we, the way is filled with good works. One of the most uh, often learnt verses in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2, and there are many verses like this. Uh, Titus chapter 2 is like this. Let me just read it. You'll have heard this because it's the sort of verse that's so helpful. Ministers are forever going back and quoting parts of it. So here's Ephesians 2. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Yeah. It's by grace, his kindness, through faith. That's how we receive it. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when God saves us, he saves us out of an empty, self-centred, ugly life into a life abounding in works of love or good works. So our trust in Jesus brings us into forgiveness and peace with God, and it produces a life that bears fruit. Now, I should finish. One way that I think is helpful, now I'm not sure, Dr. Mark, it's not true, is it, that when people have asthma, they can't breathe out? I remember reading somewhere that they can breathe in, but the problem is often they can't get the air out. Is that true? To a degree. Yes. To a degree. And I didn't even have a degree. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Mark. Send me the bill. The Apostle Paul is often speaking about breathing the air of the gospel in. The grace of God, the death of Christ, forgiveness, instant mercy. The second half of his letters is when he's breathing out, when he goes, therefore. And remember with Romans 12, you get to chapter 12 and you suddenly get, therefore, since be his mercy, live a transformed life. It's like that in Ephesians, like that in Colossians. Paul is often speaking about the breathing of God's grace and the gospel in. James is almost entirely concerned, not completely, but almost entirely with the breathing of it out in love for others. 
the breathing of the truth and the grace in. And James is saying, but if you've been breathing in and you're healthy, you will breathe it out. So he wants to make sure that we won't be self-deceived. So this week, as you read the scriptures, as you go to home group, as you do your soaping, whatever else, to not just learn for the sake of interest, but to learn so that you may put into practice love and kindness and generosity, all these things that make us not only saved by Christ, but Christ-like. Let me pray before we sing. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that it is by your love and death that we are forgiven and declared righteous before your Father. And we thank you that in knowing you, this transforms us. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us, please, from versions of faith that are perversions, that we would not have a dead faith that makes little to no difference, or a demonic faith that is correct but also lifeless but that you would make us abounding in good works, zealous for good works, as Titus says. Help us, even before we leave the building, to be careful to love one another and to go from here, eager to do good to others, to be loving and generous and Christ-like. Help us to grow in our faith and our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.